Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. This is the first time that we've drank together for the podcast yeah. on St. Patrick's Day. I believe so. And it'll be another six years <laughs> before a Thursday on St. Patrick's Day <laughs> comes around again. Yeah. It was funny. Is Casey's like, should we do something? I was like, I mean, if we did, it like wouldn't be on St. Patrick's Day. And like, I don't know. Like, it's never Just really been. Yeah. It's never been like my favorite holiday. Um, mm. The one time I like went really hard on St. Patrick's Day. Um, I tried to, it was like when Casey and I were first dating mm-hmm. um, and I tried to keep up with him and Casey's like a really good drinker. He's a heavyweight. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's a heavyweight. And uh, yeah, I ended up getting super drunk and making him make me a grilled cheese and then I threw it at him. Mm. So it was a really fun St. Patrick's Day. That's a perfect St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> we do like the um, the leprechaun trap and everything. So that's fun. <laughs> that's Funny. It is. I forget that you guys do that. That they love it. They put the coins outside, and then that's to keep the leprechaun from coming in our house to steal our money. <laughs> and then they get like you know a cute little like. Are Lucky Charms involved though? Oh, is that always. part of the trail? We always okay. have Lucky Charms. There's always green glitter, which producer hates. <laughs> There's always like green milk, green cream cheese in the morning, like for oh breakfast. It's just so fun. That's the yeah. stuff that gets me through the week. Yeah. And those like, I didn't post any pictures of it. I don't need people to know that I did yeah. that shit. I just want to do it to have fun. And also like my kids aren't believers anymore. Right. So now it's just for sheer. Just for fun. Sheer enjoyment. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about a cat. Catholic saint that has been turned into a drinking holiday. No way. We're here to talk about history. <laughs> On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we're drinking the entire time. And we are not <laughs> historians. Absolutely not. <laughs> Far from it. But we do know a little bit of stuff. Oh, yeah. We know some things. Um, pop culture. We know pop culture things. We know some other things. About um, radon. Yeah, I know a lot about radon. Uh-huh. Uh, not probably quite enough, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I have a degree in gender studies and Allie has a degree in history. So between the two of us, we get it done. Yeah. You know, we get it done. We make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But you are busy right now. You are baking soda bread. Of course. Of course. Um, because it's St. Patrick's Day, even though St. Patrick's Day will be a week over when you listen to this. That's okay. You're still baking it because you just love it. You don't need St. Patrick to tell no. you to bake soda bread. Yeah, you're you're a little behind. It's yeah. fine. But it's a bit of a stodgy dough, you know, I think. Uh, and so your hands are covered in flour and dough and it's sticky. And you don't want to be looking at your phone, you know, while you're doing it to look up what these women look like. <laughs> so we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, what does your person look like? <laughs> So I'm going to read quotes about my person from a book. Okay. And then just give her my description. Okay. So all of these are quotes. She is a lady fair to look upon. She was young and yet not so. (laughs) The braids of her dark hair were touched with no frost. Her white arms and clear face were frostless and smooth. And the light of the stars was in her bright eyes, gray as a cloudless night. Yet she looked queenly. Thought and knowledge were in her glance as one who had known many things that the years bring. Can you guess from that text? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you if, said she has dark braids? Well, in the text. In not the text. in the way that you might know her. Okay. So Are the you, way you might know, do you want to okay. guess first? Are you doing Elsa? No. Okay. Okay. So she has dark hair um, and gray eyes. She's three-fourths elf and one-fourth human. <gasps> Are and you doing Arwen? I am. <laughs> And is said to be the most beautiful of the last generation oh of half elves. Gosh, this fictional character is from one of the largest book and movie <sighs> franchises in the last hundred years, and is played by the lovely Liv Tyler. You know, it's so perfect. Is it, a couple of weeks ago, I do you ever watch um, like Architectural Digest YouTube channel? <laughs> Can't say that I have. It's very good. <laughs> okay. And they do like tours of celebrities' homes and things like that. And they did one with Liv Tyler. <sighs> and she had redone this old brownstone in New York. Of course she it's did. I fucking amazing. love her. And God. she takes you throughout the whole thing. She put a pink skylight in. It's unbelievable. But she takes you up to her attic. And she's like, yeah, here's my Arwen sword. And it's like this gorgeous yeah. sword that she got while filming the movie. And she was like, I should probably like do something with this instead of having it just tucked away in the attic. Yeah, she probably like stole it from the yeah. set and was trying to hide it and now it's broadcast on this YouTube channel. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I wanted to do like Princess Leia and Arwen this season because I yeah. think they were big characters I was intimidated by yeah. and that I kind of have always let you talk me out of in the past. But I was like, if I make the decision by myself that I just have to yeah. do it. No, that's perfect. Uh, it's nice too because I did go back and just like watch some of the clips of her in God. that movie and they're so good. They're I love so good. the one where she like tells the river to like wash away the evil men. Yeah, yeah It's yeah. so good. The Black Riders. Go for it. Who are okay. you doing? Yeah. What does she look like? So my person is also pretty pale <laughs> uh she is a pale small framed woman who has a long face sharp cheekbones and kind of these big almond shaped eyes that are kind of cat-like usually emphasized with dark eyeliner um over the years her mouth has become kind of pinched um but she still looks very much like herself uh she can typically be seen in some pretty cool leather outfits which haven't really changed much since the 70s but maybe a little more polished you know fewer um what do you call them? Safety pins on the collars, but still maybe a few. <laughs> uh, but the most iconic part of her look is her mullet type hairstyle that she has also had since the 70s, which is jet black. Hmm. She is a rock star. She has a guitar slung around her at all times. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, she's I got don't. a real bad reputation. It's Joan Jett. That's great. Uh, that's really, really exciting. I'm not a rock star aficionado. Uh, that's fun. Yeah, I'm super excited. Joan Jett is really, the whole story is really interesting. That's cool. I feel like we do not quite enough rock stars. We don't. And yeah. like, we're not, we don't do a, a ton of musicians. We do a lot of movie stars. And she is someone who really has done so much for the genre and women in rock. So I'm really excited to get into it. Oh, I agree. And I think like we do a lot of like the Ella Fitzgeralds of yeah. music uh -huh. and then not as many of like the Alanis Morissette. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, so tell me what I'm drinking. It kind of looks like a Cosmo. Okay. So this is called Ch -ch -ch Cherry Bomb. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is spiced rum, cherry simple syrup. I also like muddled a few maraschino cherries in there just to give it more cherry taste um i put 
a lot of lime juice in there and orange bitters. I shook it all up and topped the whole thing off with Sprite. Great. So cheers. cheers. Mm. Mm. Very sweet. Mm. It almost tastes, I know it's the the orange bitters, but it's almost reminding me of like a vanilla Coke. Oh. I don't know why, because there's Yum. that soda background mm-hmm. from the Sprite. Mm-hmm. And then the orange bitters are giving me a vanilla Coke vibe. I don't know yeah. why. I also, like, I just used the straight up, like, juice from the maraschino cherry jar. Oh, that also might be <laughs> it. Yeah. That might be it. I don't know. It's kind but of Shirley temple then. It is. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Very good. I Very sweet. Yeah. Nice, like, springy cocktail. Yeah. Because I was thinking, I was like, oh, like, Joan Jett, like, in the Black Hearts, like, it's all mm-hmm. very dark. Like, should I do, like, a black cocktail? And then I was like, you know what? Cherry Bomb is this this iconic song. I have to do a cherry cocktail. Yeah. So it ended up pink and fun. Perfect. <laughs> so what do you know about Joan Jett? I don't know anything about Joan Jett. I mean, I know what she looks like. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, if you turned on one of her songs, I would be able to sing along with it, but I wouldn't be able to immediately be like, Joan, that's Joan Jett. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a thing that I have with a lot of, like, musicians from that era. Yes. The same is true of, like, Stevie Nicks. Uh-huh. Like, I, a song would come on and I'd be like, I know this song i know all the lyrics to this song yeah. but i don't know who who it belongs to right okay perfect well this is gonna be really fun then because joan has a really interesting story um so let's get into it she's like an 80s <laughs> right 70s and 80s 70s and 80s yeah. mostly okay mm-hmm. that's what i in my head that's where i place her yeah um so my two sources are the rock candy podcast they do uh, all sorts of like rock and roll history it's very cool um, so I really got most of this from them and I think they watched the bad reputation documentary, which I watched as well. Um, so the rock candy podcast and bad reputation, the documentary. Okay. Joan Marie Larkin was born on September 22nd, 1958 in Wynwood, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia to parents, James and Dorothy Larkin. Her father was an insurance salesman and her mother was a secretary. Uh, Joan was the oldest of three kids. They were the typical 1950s family, complete with a membership to the local Presbyterian church. But her parents weren't quite the typical parents. They seemed to be pretty chill about a lot of stuff and always encouraged their kids to pursue their interests, whatever they might be. Um, so 1967, the family moved to Rockville, Maryland. I don't know why Rockville always comes up. It's like Joan Jett and F. Scott Fitzgerald. They got like a, it's a nice place to be apparently. I guess so. It's I mean, where I producer hate, works. I hate driving there. So Ugh, yeah. Uh, and it was here in Maryland where Joan asked her parents for a very particular gift that Christmas. All she wanted was a guitar. So being the supportive parents that they were, they bought her one. A silver electric guitar, which is very bold because Joan didn't say that she wanted an electric guitar. I, mean, I would most, assume acoustic. Most parents would go acoustic, but I think they just kind of knew she was a rocker. At heart. <laughs> <laughs> Did they get her an amp to go with it? Probably not. <laughs> Damn it. Joan was like, it was probably one of those like $30 ones that you'd like see in like the middle of the aisle at like Sears. Walmart. Like, yeah, oh, or, like Walmart. Sears yeah. back then, yeah. <laughs> Walmart was like not as big. <laughs> so she's 13. She has a guitar. She's ready to play. And she's driving her parents crazy because she has no idea how to play the guitar. <laughs> so she's just like. <laughs> so they get her a music teacher and she goes, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to play rock and roll. And he looks at her and he's like, 
mm, girls don't play rock and roll. Rude. Here are some nice folk songs for you to play on your electric guitar. <laughs> play it's some like, Alison Krauss, yeah, please. He's like, do you like Joni Mitchell? Uh, and she is like, no, I do not. I am not having any of this. So she fired him <laughs> or quit the lessons. Yeah, really. I was like, Can you 13, fire She can't fire. <laughs> um, but... Joan really wanted to be involved in music somehow. Uh, one really sweet thing is that her and her mom used to go to the movies a lot together, and they particularly loved the 1972 film Cabaret, mm-hmm. starring the amazing Liza Minnelli. Ugh. Just like the campy weirdness of the Kit Kat Club and the amazing music really drew Joan in. And she was about to get an opportunity to get a little bit closer to a big music scene when her family moved to West Covina, California, when Joan was 14. This family is <laughs> all over the place. Oh, oh, I, I guess, mean, I guess that's the insurance biz, baby. <laughs> I guess Philly to Rockville is not that big of a deal, but but all the way to West Covina, which is so funny because it's kind of particularly like a nowhere town. It's where Crazy Ex-Girlfriend the show is placed, which is hysterical because she like sings this whole song. She's like, West Covina. And she's like looking around and it's just like a bunch of like advertisements for lawyers and like <laughs> pretzel stands. Like It's just like a normal like weird suburb. Yes, it's like Joppa Road. Um, Perfect. <laughs> now I can picture it wonderfully. <laughs> Joppa Road. <laughs> but they weren't in town very long before Joan's parents divorced and Joan ended up going uh, with her mom in the divorce settlement. This is when she changed her last name to her mother's maiden name of Jet. Oh, I always assumed that that was a stage name. Well, at least that's what she told people for years. Uh, According to Wikipedia, it was (laughs) a stage name and that wasn't true. But also it's Wikipedia, so who knows? I don't know. Was it in the documentary that that's It was in the podcast. Oh, interesting. I know. Maybe they know her. Maybe they know her. (laughs) So her and her mother moved to L.A., which is a wild place to be in the 1970s. It is the era of drugs and glam rock and disco. So lots of different types of music for a kid like Joan to get into. Honestly, I'm jealous. Oh my gosh, me too. (laughs) She finds herself most frequently, though, at a little establishment called Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco. Now, this guy, Rodney, was pretty big in the music business. He was a DJ who was really good at spotting new artists and kind of, like, skyrocketing them to fame. Okay. According to legend, he was the first DJ to play Blondie, the Ramones, Sex Pistols, and Nirvana on the radio. Like, no other people would play these people. And he was like, I'm going to play them. And he was really into playing, like, the newest kind of weird music at his club. Okay. And according to Joan, this club was basically a nightclub for teens, but (laughs) Like, not one that didn't serve alcohol. Like, just not like H2O. No, it's not (laughs) H2O, just add water. Um, But if you, like, she was like, yeah, if you were 21, you were already too old to be there. Yeah, so just when you're legal to be there, great. Yeah, because then you get statutory rape charges. Like, get out. (laughs) Um, But she especially loved the scene at Bingenheimer's English Disco because it was focused on glam rock. And glam rock is basically like fun rock and roll with lots of glitter and platform heels and crazy costumes like think david bowie oh yeah like you know how extra david bowie is that was glam rock 
So she's 15 years old, hanging out in this bar full of the weirdest people in Los Angeles <laughs> in the 70s. So pretty fucking weird. And she meets a girl named Carrie Crone. Carrie is a 13-year-old girl oh. who was apparently quite a regular in the L.A. club scene. So she knew everyone. Carrie's trying to get a songwriting career off the ground. And Joan was hell-bent on forming an all-female rock band. Carrie and Joan got together and they kind of tried to be musical partners, but it wasn't really working out. So they just ended up being really good friends. I love the all female rock band <sighs> thing that people really started to push. Oh yeah. In the seventies. They were like, mm-hmm. we can do this. Uh huh. Um, and, but Carrie did end up introducing jo- uh, Joan to someone who was going to change her life. A guy named Kim Fowley. Kim Fowley is a real piece of work. Uh, which we'll get into later. Um, but he had basically made a name for himself alongside Bingenheimer in the glam rock scene. Kim like a boy? Yeah, Kim, a, boy a boy named Kim, huh. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and to give you a picture of him, before we get into it later, uh, Iggy Pop <laughs> said that Kim was like Frankenstein if Frankenstein was on crack. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of crazy. So they link up, and Joan basically tells Kim, she goes, I want to form an all-girl rock band because there isn't one, and I can't possibly be the only girl in Los Angeles who wants to be on that fucking stage. Kim could really see the potential in the idea and in Joan, so they started recruiting. The first member after Joan was a girl named Sandy West. She was a drummer from Long Beach, California, who at 15 years old, like Joan, uh, somehow got linked up with them. Um, (laughs) They all just met at the clubs in L.A. Um, And this was the very beginning of the band The Runaways. Then they found a bassist named Mickey Steele. Uh, she was around 20 years old, and maybe that's why she didn't really stick around. Uh, she kind of <laughs> came and went. But I'm mentioning her uh, because, oh, wait, also she didn't stick around because Kim Fowley was trying to sleep with her all the time. Ugh. <laughs> Upsetting. Um, but I want to mention her because she would eventually become the bassist for another famous girl group, The Bangles. <laughs> That's great. I, okay, so wait. is it, I feel like bass player is the most common female mm-hmm like a uh, band group member i think so yeah and i, I like also is probably the least common yes although in the white stripes right she's the a white stripes she's the drummer matt and kim right. uh, she's the drummer um i feel like there are some other famous ones but it is mostly yeah it's i think it's rare to have a, a lot female of drummer I, I, mm-hmm. it's so interesting to me because i feel like playing instruments a lot like chess it's like women have been excluded from it, but for very different reasons than like normal exclusion. Mm -hmm. It's like not, I feel like chess is like knowledge based exclusion. And then rock and roll is like, this isn't proper enough yeah. for you, mm-hmm. which is so strange to me because like the strength thing I can at least like semi vibe with, like, I don't agree obviously, but it's like, okay, I can see where that came from over evolution of the last 10,000 years. I can't yeah. see where the other stuff came from. No. I also think there's like this idea of like, if girls become rock and roll icons, then we're losing our groupies. <laughs> and I oh. don't, that's my kind of theory is that boys wanted girls to stay in the audience. They wanted them to be fans of them 
and groupies of them and if girls started playing rock and roll it made them equal to them oh interesting that's my personal theory uh, that's similar to like women in the workforce like oh, if women yeah. are in the workforce then they're not wives they're not at home yeah right. they're not at home taking care of your kids yeah <laughs> exactly okay. um and i do want to say just on a note about sandy west I really loved seeing her in the documentary because she is this like young blonde teenage girl with these ripped ass muscles because she's a drummer. And I just loved watching her. Like it's, it's just really cool seeing like just physically strong, like girls. It's it's cool. Um, so 15 year old Jackie Fox replaced her. (laughs) another 15 year old uh she didn't know how to play bass but she really wanted to be a part of the band so she basically learned overnight (laughs) how to play dedication Mm -hmm. uh originally they were going to have joan on lead vocals but she was just too shy um so they set out to find a girl to lead the band and they found it in a young blonde named sheree curry who was you guessed it 15 years old (laughs) hey you know what when you know it's right, when you it's know right. it's right, it's right. <laughs> and the group was destined for greatness from the very moment Cherie walked in because it, they were like, okay, sing a song. We'll play along with you. And she was like, all right, I prepared this song. And they're like, we don't know that. So they just wrote a song so that they could like see how she does. And in about 20 minutes, they had written the hit song Cherry Bomb, <laughs> which is what this cocktail's based off of. <laughs> so... Cherie's in, and then they finished the lineup with their final member, Lita Ford, on lead guitar while Joan played rhythm guitar. So it's 1975, and this group of 15-year-old girls <laughs> starts uh, recording some songs and playing clubs around L.A. Then they got a deal with Mercury Records, and their first album was released on June 1st, 1976, with Cherry Bomb being their first song. So they're playing in clubs around L.A., And people have not seen anything like this. This kind of band of all girls had not existed before. And it was amazing what they were accomplishing. Like, this was a huge deal. And it was exactly what Joan wanted. Just this kick-ass rock band full of cool girls making this incredible feminist statement that rock and roll is for girls. I'm so jealous of that. I know. (laughs) Well, I was never cool. (laughs) I know. But... I have to say, there is kind of a big fucked up part of this. Uh Uh-oh. And that fucked up part is Kim Fowley. Um, He was behind the whole band. He's their manager. He's running the show. And I said earlier that he's a piece of work, um, but it's more apt to say that he's a total piece of shit. Oh. And I hate to say this, but the reason he was especially interested in starting this band was because he was a sexual predator. So he's trying to take advantage of these young girls. He routinely sexually abused underage girls um, throughout his time in Hollywood. So like, it's a little upsetting to me that people in the scene knew that he did this and they let him form this band. Everyone knew him and knew what he was up to and no one fucking stopped him. And uh, he even once if you think that I'm like joking about how blatant it was, uh, he put an ad in the newspaper looking for a young girl to basically be a sex slave for him. Mm. This is what the ad said. If you are 18 and like it, or if you are under 18 and legally emancipated with paperwork, which means he knew it was fucking wrong. He knew it was illegal. That's why he was demanding fucking paperwork for it to save his ass. Because he's putting this ad in the fucking newspaper. 
then you may have just stumbled upon the opportunity of a lifetime. I demand a blonde, blue-eyed sex dog, a modern Brigitte Bardot with no sagged-out tits or stretch marks, brown hair and brown eyes tolerated only if you are massively titted with a biker mama vibes. Surf stink is most appealing. Isn't that the most disgusting thing you have ever heard? That was published in the in actual newspaper. newspaper. In the ads. In the personal. I was like, that person should have been arrested. Immediately arrested. What? What? I hate it. I hate it so much. And he just routinely treated the girls in the band like shit. Um, and he was really into like making especially Cherie um, wear like really skimpy clothing and he had her wear like lingerie on stage like literally like you know the bustier with you know like just boy like shorts. under not even boy shorts like, oh, like full a underwear. literal underwear with like the you know the knee highs with the stirrup things like oh. yeah I mean I'm upset that he's acting like this, but I'm more upset that no one's saying anything. Yeah. That is the biggest problem with sexual predators that exactly. everybody's just like, it's not my problem. Exactly. It's like, no, it is your fucking problem. Actually. Yeah. He also actively advertised the band as a bunch of jail bait, which is disgusting in itself. And even more upsetting when you again, remember that these girls are 15 years old old well it's taylor's oldest time in la it really is you're selling these little girls and mm-hmm. you're i mean we saw it happen to like shirley temple in that oh like gosh. baby vamp yeah like, that's exactly. disgusting and when joan and sheree talk about it they do see the sexual nature of the band as empowering and i do believe that it was for them like they're like they kind of thought of it as like no like we did want to like sing about that stuff and do this stuff and we wanted to be sexy and cool and adult and grown up but I think we can also hold that as true and also like see that it's fucked up that it was being spurred on by a serial sexual abuser. Right. Because we have, we have the exact opposite reaction when like Selena's like, dad, I want to wear this. And he's like, you can't wear that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh, but this is actually what I want to wear. This is self-expression. So there's just such a thin line between how to like appropriately present yourself yeah and i mean people get upset about it like with billy eilish mm-hmm. like billy eilish has like a body addy and she's like i am only gonna wear big t-shirts and then she wore something really tight and people were mad at her because before that she had only worn big t-shirts and it's right. like yeah but now i'm in like vanity fair this is a photo shoot this isn't like on stage yeah. and also i'm growing up and changing my fucking mind yeah. like what <laughs> why do you have anything to say about it's this it's so uncomfortable the way that like it's be- like because she wore these big t-shirts now it's a mystery and now we're gonna talk about it every time you don't that's terrible yeah. it's awful and this is what happens to teenage girls in the in the industry yeah exactly Ugh. and uh, it was made even worse like all of this is terrible um but then it all ended up in him raping one of the members jackie fox the bassist who learned bass overnight just to join the band because she wanted to be a part of it and he had drugged her with quaaludes like he did a lot of his victims and uh, raped her at a new year's eve party in a room full of people including joan and sheree they were there they saw this happen now they were again 
teenagers at the time. They're young. They were also probably wasted and on drugs. They all did a ton of drugs during this time. So we can maybe see them, you know, not doing the right thing at that time. But unfortunately, Joan has routinely defended Kim over the years, saying at one point when asked about this awful situation, she was like, well, if the other girls didn't like Kim, then they didn't have to be in the band. They could have just quit. And I hate that she has defended him. I really hate it. And I, it's something that a lot of people don't mention when talking about Joan Jett because she is this feminist icon. But that is a total unfeminist thing to do is victim blame in this awful situation where your friend and bandmate was raped and drugged. Yeah. I mean, and it's of the time for her to make those statements. Like, yeah. really, unfortunately. Not that there aren't women that were like, no, this is fucking wrong. Because we know in the 70s there were. Yeah. And um, she's defending it in, like, the 2010s. Yeah. Like, I feel like recently. sometimes in the public eye when you make that statement, then you feel weird going back on yeah. it. Which, again, doesn't make it okay. No. I just think maybe she's sticking to her narrative, but I don't like it. I also think that because Kim didn't do any of this stuff to Joan, like Joan had a much different relationship with him than the other girls did. Mm. And I don't know if it's because she and him had more of like a father daughter type relationship or just more professional. I don't know. But I also think, I also think it's hard when like she's like the only one in the group that's like not really experiencing it full blown. Right. And so I think there's also a part of it that maybe is like kind of unbelieving of it. I don't know, even though like she knows that it happened. Hmm. Um, but I have to mention it because when we cover this people, we also have to cover like the shitty things about them. And this is a shitty part of Joan's life and yeah. we can't ignore it. Nobody's flawless. No, absolutely. Except not. for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Kim Fowley is the worst, uh, but the group is touring around duly a bit. <laughs> yeah, duly noted. Um, and people like it because they think that their band, The Runaways, is so cute. And they're like, oh, my Ugh. gosh, look at that. They're girls and they have their instrument. And they're yelling and screaming. I love it. OK, we're done with it now. And when they're done with it and then the girls don't go away and they do things like release another album and try to play bigger venues, they're like, Okay, it's not cute anymore. What the fuck do you think you're doing? And the more serious the girls present themselves as musicians and as a band, the more angry the crowds get. They were okay with it in the beginning, but now it's like you're stepping on people's toes. Joan said that she left every show covered in spit. She got her head split open by an angry person throwing a beer bottle at her. And then one time when she was on stage, someone threw a giant metal battery pack at her and broke her ribs. Wait, because like she is getting just... assaulted just because they're girls on stage playing rock and roll. People just could not handle it. And I don't know if it helped or hurt even worse, but like Kim decided that like the girls need to be more prepared for this. So like every rehearsal, he would just like throw things at them and like yell at them and scream at them and like say awful things Ew, like dodgeball. Like, yeah. Uh, and then when the girls were talked about in the press, they were called sluts who were encouraging girls in America to be whores just like them. They would focus on them being bad influences and say things like, are they supple Lolitas or teenage trash? And the Runaways, Reckless and Brawless, you know, they're getting kicked out of Disneyland, you know, just all these like crazy things. What's the fear of, it's like 
quote, the fear of my daughter turning out like exactly. that. Like, what a bad influence. Exactly. Listen, I listened to Eminem growing <laughs> up and I am fine. Like I'm, I'm totally We're fine. fine. We're all fine. <laughs> or like they would show a picture with the girls and they just like had their arms around each other because they're a band and they'd be like, the runaways are lesbians. All of them. <laughs> We're best friends. Yeah. Calm down. So Joan said she would cry almost every night after they would perform because she just didn't understand why people were being so awful to them. She was just like, I just don't fucking get it. And because of all this, even though Joan and Cherie were kind of owning their sexual image, Joan from the get go, like refused to answer sexist questions that the media threw at her. Like when one guy asked what they would wear during rehearsal, he said, I heard it gets so hot that the air conditioner breaks. And she was like, that has no, that's like, never what are happened. you doing? Like, no, we're not so hot in the recording studio that the air conditioner breaks. That's so <laughs> fucking stupid. And all of this was made worse by Kim Fowley, of course, because not only was he kind of sexually abusing them and doing all sorts of shady shit, he was also constantly trying to start drama between the girls like he would lie to them about stuff that the other person said and like do all these weird things and then he was also pumping them full of drugs um such as the aforementioned quaaludes and cocaine so soon you just have a bunch of 15 year olds running around drinking doing drugs and nobody knows what the fuck is going on <laughs> so with the u.s firmly against the runaways they took their show abroad and to their surprise they got sold out shows around the world <laughs> people in other countries had heard of the runaways and they fucking loved We're them a very weirdly religious yes, country we <laughs> are <laughs> um, now do i think people should have been against the runaways for some reasons sure but mostly because of kim right not, exactly so they should have the been after kim Fowley, not her. the girls they should have gone after him <laughs> yeah um one of their first and most frequent haunts was London, which is not surprising given their history with punk and all that. Um, but they also got really big in Europe and Asia and Australia and Canada and South America. But the country that loved them the most was Japan. Joan said that when they got in, into Japan, it was like being in the Beatles. There were crowds waiting for them when they got off the plane and they'd be like doing that thing of walking down the steps and people were like, we love the yeah. like crowds and crowds of people it was so cool and they were asked to be guests on tv shows and they had their own tv specials and like it had again they performed a sold out shows every time they were in japan they fucking loved them and the cool thing was Joan said when she would look out into the crowd of these people cheering for them, she was like, it was all teenage girls. Oh, that's great. It was so cool. Because, like, I feel like there is a thing, like, Japanese teenage girls fucking love rock and roll. Like, yeah. there's some really cool, like, hardcore Japanese girl bands, and they are so cool well i feel like glamour rock too would go yeah. over really really well in mm -hmm. like in niche communities in japan absolutely so they even ended up releasing a special album for them called live in japan <laughs> so the worldwide tour was a huge success they feel like a real band now and they're so excited because kim says 
you're finally going to get a paycheck. The girls had not received any money up until this point. They're just doing this for like for funsies. Yeah. Did they like drop out of school? Oh God, they were they hadn't been in school in forever. I don't think. Oh my God, I totally, I totally forgot they were supposed to be in school. <laughs> They're like little <laughs> tiny babies. And it was like really fucked up because yeah, they weren't getting paid. So if they needed food or you know, she said if we needed tampons, we'd have to go ask him for money. She was like, right. it was so embarrassing. So when they were told they were finally getting paycheck, they were so excited. They're like, it's got to be a pretty good one. We're selling out shows all over the world. Like, this is going to be amazing. It was around $20 per girl. No. Mm-hmm. They're selling out shows and they got 20 bucks. Yeah, 20 bucks per show per girl. Who's taking the money? Kim. Of course. All of it. All of it. Isn't that fucked up? I, I don't understand how this was. Where are these kids' parents? <laughs> Why is this allowed I to go on know. for so long? I'm so upset. I have no idea what is going on, but it's awful. So, yeah, not only is he doing all these awful things, but then he's stealing their money. It's so bad. <laughs> and then. I'm blown so away. now, I'm like. Blown away. It sucks, too, because Joan was like, oh, great. We're, like, finally doing it. We're being a rock and roll band. And then she's like, wow, this is not what I thought it would be. Said and everyone who was ever in a rock and roll everyone. band. Everyone, yeah. <laughs> There's not one rock and roll star that's like, yeah, I'm really fulfilled by this. Yeah. <laughs> and he's Jimmy Buffett. And then, <laughs> is that rock and roll? Um, and then there was one more, like, really awful blow so Kim Fowley had been working on some promotional material for the worldwide tour. And when the girls saw it, none of the pictures he used were of the band. It was solo shots of Cherie in her underwear. And that was it. He had hired a professional photographer to just go with Cherie alone and take these like soft core porn pictures and that was all he used. Of like a teenage child. Uh-huh. The girls did not take this well. And unfortunately, they, they blamed Cherie. Oh, man, Cherie, yeah. They took it out on Cherie. And more drama ensued with the band, all encouraged by Kim. You know, because like the girls are like, you know, yeah, Kim set it up. But like, Cherie, like, you fucking did it. Like, you could have told us. You could have done this. And it's like, you're all teenagers struck out on coke like you know it's just well, so hard to see at that's the time, exactly but... it though you know they can't say <sighs> get, remember the stupid shit you got mad about in high school oh my think god. about these poor girls Absolutely. i was the same way I got oh th- my god i still get mad about stupid shit and i'm in my 30s yeah <laughs> <laughs> like i can't imagine that being like we've been working on this together forever and it's just solar shots of you the bassist right no she's the lead singer sheree's the lead oh, singer right, 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 yeah right, right, right. so she's like the girl out on the front she's the blonde bombshell she is she's the adam levine yeah <laughs> got it sure <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> um so this was kind of the beginning of the end yeah uh jackie fox the bassist uh quit soon after the jap japan tour um and sheree said she left a broken child which god just breaks my fucking heart and soon after sheree also called it quits she was 17 years old by this time and had developed a really bad coke and quaalude habit obviously encouraged by kim and she decided she's like, i need to get out of here for my own health 
Um, and she did end up getting clean and she worked in rehab centers to help other people suffering from addiction, um, which was great. Uh, she also has a crazy story where she gets like kidnapped. Um, so yeah, that's also bananas. Okay. Um, but <laughs> I can't go note. into it now because Side that's Cherie's story. <laughs> we'll get to but, Cherie yeah. in year 2028. <laughs> But the band was falling apart and Joan was taking it really hard. She felt like she was finally starting to achieve her rock and roll dreams. And now the rug was being pulled out from underneath of her. She needed to do something to try and keep the remaining members of the band together. And so they finally, finally decide to fire Kim Fowley. And Joan became the leader of the band. She hired Vicky Blue on bass and decided that she was finally ready to be lead vocals. She was also moving the band more towards the punk genre. She really loved London and had become really good friends with the Sex Pistols. And they were really influential to her. She said, I went to London wearing glitter and I came home dressed as a punk. (laughs) (laughs) And it said that, like, she brought the punk style to the West Coast. Like, the reason people started dressing that way on that side was because of her, which is pretty cool. I mean, to go from the 70s to the 80s, I can see that happening mm-hmm. in my head. Where yeah. it's like, I was in this very, like, glam rock, David Bowie era. And to make the transition, I've got to put on my fishnets uh-huh. with my ripped jeans over top. Yep. And my converses. Right. And like, <laughs> I have to, the dark eye makeup, like mm-hmm. you said in the, yeah, it yep. makes total sense. Yep. Um, so in total, the runaways produced five albums, but after just a few years, the wounds were too deep and Joan said she could feel the other girls really pulling away from her. She said, I didn't want to be fired from my own band, so I just dissolved the whole thing in the spring of 1979 when she was 20 years old. Wow. This was a huge blow. And Joan became really depressed after this. 20. 20. 20. Katie, she's a baby. I know. And when asked how she dealt with it, she said, I just drank all day starting at 8 in the morning. I didn't do anything else. She felt like she'd failed in her great feminist quest and she felt like people were just laughing at her and saying, see, girls can't play rock and roll like you failed and this will never happen again, which is a very dramatic way to look at it. But I understand wait, why she's thinking wait, that. Wait, she strung out and her band broke up? Yeah. That is rock and roll. Know, you so did it. You did it. <laughs> And soon the drinking and the partying was catching up with her and she ended up in the hospital with a heart infection. I don't know what the hell causes a heart infection. Everything. Everything. (laughs) I feel like that's the number one killer in the United States. I think heart disease is. Quote me. Yeah, Mm -hmm. quote me on it. Um, And then things got just a tad bit more stressful when Joan was told that she had to produce eight more songs for Mercury Records in six days or else she would be sued for breach of contract. Called Taylor Swift. So Joan called, not Taylor Swift, but (laughs) Kenny Laguna. (laughs) She wasn't bored for another 10 years. (laughs) And I will say she didn't call him, but she was connected with him. The studio was like, all right, we got this guy, Kenny. You guys can write some songs together. Just fulfill your contract. And this was kind of an odd pairing because Kenny had made a name for himself producing bubblegum pop. Like Mm -hmm. 
the most sticky sweet songs you can possibly think of. Like the ones like yummy, yummy, yummy. Yeah. I got love in my tummy. Uh, I love. He produced that pop. song. I Me too. It's great. <laughs> it's so good. It's so happy. So it seemed like a weird pairing, but it ended up working really well because he had kind of this thing of he's like, okay, what you're doing is good, but let's round it out a bit and make it so that people will enjoy it. Let's make it catchy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's it's like we need a, a hook. We need a hook. <laughs> um, so they filled the contract, which was such a relief for Joan, and then they just kept going. Oh, Kenny saw something in her, and he decided that he wanted to help her write and produce her first solo album. So during the process, they found out that what Joan was actually really good at was covers, kind of similar to Miley Cyrus. You know how now she that's pretty much all she does is just covers of like old rock songs and they're really good and they're really good it makes me truly appreciate those old rock songs yes it does and it's bringing them to a new generation so and she went through exactly (laughs) this it's why she presented joan with her rock and roll hall of fame miley cyrus presented her like with the award it's pretty cool yeah um yeah miley cyrus was in the documentary she really looks up to joan which is pretty obvious Mm. um and from her first solo album, she had two of her most famous songs. Uh, one cover, which is Do You Want to Touch? Mm. You know, it's like, do you want to touch? What do you yeah. want? That song. Um, <laughs> and and one original song that was based on her time with the Runaways, Bad Reputation, mm. which I love that song. All I ever think of is the Shrek scene where they're like in the little wrestling <laughs> <Yeah>. ring. <laughs> yes. Um. But they weren't hits right away. The album was first released in Europe in 1980 and was selling pretty well, but no one in the U.S. wanted anything to do with Joan Jett. This album was rejected 23 times. Ew. And any Is it because Ronald Reagan was president? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and any time she tried to do some press to reignite interest, she was met with the same bullshit questions. Like one reporter asked her, when you play guitar on stage, do you feel like a man or a woman? She's like, I just feel like myself. What the fuck are you talking about? It's why we all have to start saying like the first male engineer exactly like, so that we can like, start <laughs> letting people know how ridiculous they sound he it's... was a he's a male doctor yeah <laughs> have you heard of it he's a male he's police officer really breaking barriers <laughs> male firefighter <laughs> um kenny said in the documentary that he just couldn't believe how hard it ended up being to take jones music and get it out there he's like i just didn't think it was gonna be that hard so taking a note from beatrix potter she and kenny (laughs) released the album with their own money well the money from kenny's daughter's college fund oh my gosh (laughs) don't worry they made it back tenfold um i got really worried they officially started blackheart records and they would literally like they pressed them themselves and then would sell the records out of the back of kenny's car after shows (laughs) but they realized that it also like just couldn't be joan and whoever could be on the other instruments that night like they had to get a solid band together if this was going to work right and joan knew right from the start that she didn't want to play in an all-girl band again not because she didn't still love the idea of an all-girl band, but if she did it again, they would always be compared to the Runaways. Right. 
So she put an ad for a few good men to be in her band. And once she had her guys, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts moved their home base closer to the punk center of the U.S., New York City, baby. Yeah, yeah. And once they were regularly playing on the East Coast, they seemed to have a lot more success because there are a lot more opportunities to gain listeners on the East Coast. Like, literally, in a couple hours, you can be in Philadelphia, Baltimore, D.C., you know, Connecticut. like Even Atlanta, Boston. Georgia. Not yeah. that far. Not that far. There are just a lot more cities. You know, on the West Coast, it's like California and Portland. <laughs> Yeah. And, like, that's kind I mean, of it. And California like, is huge. So, like, if you're trying to get from, like, Sacramento to Los Angeles to San Francisco, it is just a 10-hour drive instead yeah. of, like, an hour and a half. Yeah. And, like, a lot of the scenes in California seem to be kind of the same. Mm. You know, every city in on the East Coast, I mean, this is also my East Coast elitism popping out. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But each city has their very own quirky labor and quirkiness and when you can get a city behind you on the east yeah. coast like that's a really good fucking thing yeah it's funny <laughs> because each of the cities on the east coast are like eclectic yes but they're all like differently eclectic the best west coast comparison is san francisco mm-hmm. i think that's the one that it seems th- from my limited experience in california mm-hmm. i think that San Francisco seemed the most like an East Coast city. Yeah. Like in San Diego, Los Angeles, Orange County. I never felt like that. I was like, this mm. is exotic and strange. <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. Um, so they are slowly but surely gaining fans, but they're still only playing small clubs. That is until their second album comes out and they release a single, another cover that Joan had wanted to do for a long time. This was a song that she had even tried to get the Runaways to do, but the Runaways just didn't see it. They're like, we don't like that song. Like, no, thank you. Lame. It was of an Arrow song called I Love Rock and Roll. (laughs) (laughs) Is that how the song goes? No. Yeah, it is. I love rock and roll. roll. Yeah, that's the opening chord. Oh, it is. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) It it sounded like a Mario song for a second. Maybe I did it wrong with my mouth. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Deepest inside joke cut of all time. (laughs) If you want to hear the story, listen to Patreon. (laughs) We have to remember to tell it. I'll write it down right now. So. It's 1982, and there's a new TV station that's trying to get off the ground. And when they hear this song, they approach Kenny, and they go, please, please make a music video for this song, and we're going to get it on here, and it's going to be a hit. We promise you. And Kenny's like, okay, we'll do it, but, like, just play it two times a day. Like, we don't want, like, people to get, like, sick of this. But soon... This music video is playing 16 times a day on the new TV station, MTV. MTV. <laughs> Walmart is selling an MTV hoodie right now that I almost bought. Who? Walmart. Oh. <laughs> they have an MTV hoodie that I was almost like, I need that. And then I was like, no, I don't. No, I don't. No. Um, so, yeah. So, it's really big for MTV. It's really big for Joan. And now she's really entering the second phase of her career. She is selling out arenas full of fans and going on world tours yet again. Famous artists like David Bowie and Freddie Mercury are coming to see her on stage. Like they're asking to come to her shows. (laughs) That's Joan Jett. Yeah, exactly. 
the song would become absolutely legendary for her and of course would later in life become the feminist anthem for the hit Britney Spears vehicle Crossroads never forget (laughs) what a great movie also I love that movie it's so good it's very good what's a Ponsatucky from Orange is the New Black isn't it yeah and um oh gosh she the girl from the Ah, Chris Pratt movie. Avengers. No, not Avengers. Yeah, Z- Zoe Saldana. Saldana? Yeah. yeah. From... She's in it. What the hell is that movie called? It's an Avengers movie. Yeah, but it's the Guardians of the Guardians Galaxy. of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. yes. And center stage, correct? So an absolute Same. star-studded cast. <laughs> <laughs> that we know all their names. And some rugged white guy. <laughs> so <laughs> Some rugged white guy. <laughs> I thought we should describe every movie yeah. for now. Name the females <laughs> and some guy. Uh, so this song is huge. And then she had a second big hit on this album, another cover, the song Crimson and Clover, uh, which the original song is by Tommy James and the Shondells. And I did listen to this song like four times today. It's Mm. so good. I love a song on repeat. Mm Mm-hmm. But this song brought some controversy into Joan's life, not because of any copyright issues or anything like that. But because Joan decided to keep the original pronouns for the song, so she's singing about a girl. Interesting. And there's one thing that we truly can't stand in America. It is lesbians. (laughs) At it again. Gayness in Um, general. Yeah. (laughs) Keep it in your pants. Please. So now she's being bombarded even more so with questions about her sexuality. And she just doesn't answer them because she's like, it's no one's fucking business. Um, so we're going to get into it, uh, <laughs> because it's we're now our business. That, it's our business we're now. We're exactly what she said and just get into it. <laughs> no, this is all the things that like she said about it. Like the most that she said, she goes, look, my sexuality is all inclusive. And she said, fans should just, uh, assume away. She's like, I don't give a fuck what they think of my sexuality. Right, exactly. Just like Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> the most pointed she ever got, though, was when her documentary Bad Reputation was taken off of the watch list for an LGBT film festival because festival organizers said that because Joan wasn't officially out of the closet yet, they wouldn't show it. And in response, Joan said, well, what the fuck is that all about? And she literally, like, showed a necklace that had and it, her lower back tattoo both with like two female symbols crossing over each other you know she was like what don't you getting like i am queer i'm just not saying that i'm like a straight up lesbian and like there weren't words for that no in the same way we're like i'm bi i'm pansexual yeah there's so many different words now yeah and i don't and i uh, totally agree with joan and she's like why do i have to put a fucking label on it she's like i like being with people that i'm interested in yeah and that's it nobody comes up and they're like are you straight yeah <laughs> when did Excuse you know me? when did you know you were straight <laughs> when did you tell your parents that you liked boys exactly and i'm like well so the only other glimpse into her love life that we really get is from sheree curry's biography neon angels uh explaining that the two did have a romantic relationship while they were in the band together Um, and there were like some other rumors about her dating people, including Jenna Jameson and Carmen Electra. Um, only one of which we've done on this show. Guess which one? (laughs) (laughs) Carmen Electra. Um, (laughs) but, but yeah, and that's like really all we know. But I think like, but Wikipedia also said that she had dated some guys. So again, we don't need to label Joan Jett. 
because <laughs> she doesn't really give a fuck about labeling herself. Nope. But back to the 80s, uh, Joan's third album released in 1983, and it was okay. It didn't make a huge splash. Um, and, you know, that was kind of like what she kind of wrote out for a little while, just writing on the success of her earlier hits. Uh, she would play with acts such as Queen and Aerosmith. Like, she is still touring a lot and playing lots of cool shows. Um, and then in 1988, she got interested in acting. So she starred in the film, the light of day next to Michael J. Fox, where they played a brother, sister, sister duo who have a rock band. Love it. Uh, and apparently Michael J. Fox, like really loved working with Joan. He's also in the documentary and he was like, she was just the coolest. I don't know that he's ever disliked anyone. Honestly, that's true. <laughs> I feel that's like he's just true. like a genuinely nice yeah. guy. If I ever hear something bad about him, I'm going to be truly. Oh God. It'll be the same way. I feel like if I find out that like Peyton Manning, cheated on his oh, wife that would be devastating. do you know what i mean yes. where it's just like okay i still have hope for some athletes mm. <laughs> uh but yeah believe in a few good men right just like a couple just like just a couple, one or two please couple jesus christ guys. and i'm not talking about like the everyday guys no who are slumming it with the likes of me i'm yeah. talking about <laughs> the fame about the big boys the famies um <laughs> so then she had another smash hit with i hate myself for loving you <laughs> But the times were a-changing, and there was a new type of music in town, and this was grunge. One of Joan's strengths is that she doesn't reject the new generation of things, so once she, like, kind of started exploring it, and especially once she heard a little band by the name of Bikini Kill, fronted (laughs) by legend Kathleen Hanna, she wanted to be involved. She called her personally. was like, hey, Kathleen, it's me, Joan Jett. And apparently Kathleen was like, fuck you. Like, no, you're not. And she was like, yeah, it's me. She goes, someone gave me your demo at like a, like a punk show in DC. And she was like, what? (laughs) So anyways, they get together and she's like, look, I want to collaborate with you. Like, I want to do shit with your band. I think what you're doing is so cool. Joan just loved the whole vibe of the riot girl movement and wanted to be part of it. She was like, look at you bikini girl. You're finally doing what I was trying to do in the seventies. Like doing all female bands. This is so fucking cool. So she offered to produce their hit single rebel girl. And then Kathleen also wrote some song for Joan's new album, plain and simple. Kathleen Hanna said that it was great working with Joan Because Joan knew exactly what they were trying to do and respected the way that they wanted to do it. Bikini Kill and other feminist bands of the radical era did not want to get on major record labels or anything like that. And Joan was like, yeah, I totally get that because she really did. Major record labels had always treated her like shit her whole life, sometimes actively wanting her to fail. Right. Kenny tells a story about how one record company refused to do any press for Joan's third album, which a lot of people credit with why we never heard any songs from it. The record company sent people out on the streets to record shops to dissuade people from buying it. It like didn't make any sense. Like that's bad for your own business. I know. So Joan really respected what Kathleen and the other young bands were trying to do. And so she started helping them record their albums and producing them. And like, just to have give them some place to go she's like yeah you don't have to go to mercury records just come to my little studio and like we can fucking do it but 
tragedy struck the grunge and punk scene when the female lead singer of the Gits, Mia Zapata, was raped and murdered on her way home from a bar. Joan was so upset by this because this is something that people like Joan and the other people in the community did all the time. Like you play late at a show, you walk home, you, walk home. you know, like a lot of these kids didn't have a lot of money. So it's like, you're taking the bus, you're walking, you're biking. And I think it really struck a chord. Cause she's like, fuck, like, why is it so dangerous for us to just like exist in this world and do what we want to do? So Joan decided that she was going to do something about this. So she joined the Gets for a little while. This like little punk band, you know, which I'm sure I'm saying a little and people sure fans of the Gets are like, they're the best. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but she even recorded an album with them so that they could sell it. And half of the proceeds went to solving her murder and hiring a private eye because like the police didn't really care too much about this. So they hired a private eye themselves and it was solved using DNA evidence like years later mm. because of this. And the other half of the proceeds went to establishing something called Home Alive, which was a program that aimed to teach, you know, especially young girls in the punk community, self-defense classes mm. and how to protect themselves against strangers. Right. Because this was something that I think when it happened, they were like, this could happen to any of us. Right. And like walking home together and like mm -hmm. shit like that. Exactly. So even though she was doing a lot with the new kids on the scene, um, her own work with the Blackhearts was just going okay. Uh, they had kind of plateaued um, by the 90s, like early 2000s, and Joan wasn't making nearly as much money as she had been before. So she's not quite sure what to do. Her and Kenny are kind of just flailing a bit right now. Um, that is until Kenny's daughter, Carrie Ann Brinkman, decided to step in because she immediately saw what the problem was. She was like, you guys are still selling CDs. Get the fuck on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny was like, no, I don't know what it is. He's like, no, I'm a rock and roller. Like iTunes sucks. I want an like, album I a record at a store. Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, dad, I'm right. <laughs> and she was. <laughs> Within the first like week of her music being on iTunes, they sold 70,000 copies of I Love Rock and Roll. Of course they did. <laughs> then she said, you also need to get yourself on a bus and go on the Vans Warp Tour because the younger generation might not know who you are and they would fucking love you. So she did. And it was a huge success bringing a whole new generations of fans in. And it also connected her to the new bands of the early like mid 2000s in her genre kind of like you know the riot girl movement did Lara jane grace from against me talks about how supportive joan was when she came out as trans in 2012 she said joan literally picked up the phone and called me and said i just saw the news i love you and i support you and i just <sighs> need you to know that <laughs> which is so sweet what a great call <laughs> but so because of the success of all the things that Carrie Ann was doing, she did end up taking over for her dad. And she is now, I believe, Joan's manager and the operator of Blackheart Records. It doesn't mean that Kenny's out of the picture. He's still a big part of Joan's life, maybe the biggest part of it. <laughs> In the documentary, people equate them to being like an old married couple. They're just so funny and perfect together. And they love each other and respect each other. 
and they can also just tell each other the fuck off all the time yeah there's like this perfect scene where like joan is like in these leather pants that have like split at the crotch and kenny is like get the fuck over here and he's like you're not duct taping it right you know and he's (laughs) duct taping her crotch (laughs) and it's you know it's just such a good relationship because it's also unlike kim fowley it's not sexual at all they're just music partners and it's so wonderful to see (laughs) and like his daughter was like oh yeah joan was like a second mom to me she was like the fun cool aunt that like you know was just around my whole life you know um so yeah so other than all the things she does personally for new young bands and whatnot, she is also a huge supporter of animals. Um, she's definitely a vegetarian, maybe a vegan. I couldn't get quite a solid answer on that. Okay. Um, but she attends a lot of animal rights protests and things like that. Um, in 2010, there was a biopic released about her time in the Runaways called The Runaways. It starred Kristen Stewart as Joan and Dakota <laughs> Fanning as Cherie Curry. And it's based on the memoir Neon Angels written by Cherie about her time in the band and her time with Joan. So there's a lot more in the book that wasn't included in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, Cherie says. But apparently they both did like the movie. Okay, that's and, good. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've seen a lot of clips. And I think that those two were cast perfectly as Joan and Cherie. Well, I, think, and I mean, Kristen Stewart has just grown into her uh, own and Dakota Fanning yes. has been great since day one. Exactly. I just, and both were in Twilight together. So uh-huh. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh my God. <laughs> I totally forgot Dakota Fanning was in that. Isn't that um, uncomfortable? To yes, say it the is. Least. yes, it is. Um, the but star yeah, I, cast in Twilight is really uncomfortable. Yes, it is. <laughs> Ashley Green, <laughs> shut up. <sighs> so, Anyways, <laughs> some people don't like them in the movie, but I think they did a great yeah, job. Whatever. Also, Kristen Stewart like really looks like so much like so Joe much Jet. like Joe yeah, Jet. yeah, she does, she does. Especially um, when her hair is cut into a uh, um, fucking black mullet. mullet. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just gonna mention this because of where we are geographically. Uh, she sang the national anthem at the Baltimore Orioles game. Of course, she did. <laughs> in which Cal Ripken officially tied Lou Gehrig's record for consecutive <laughs> games played. Uh, yep. And I love this because apparently this was a personal favor she did for Cal. He asked her to do this. Cal was I like, guess Joan Cal Ripken Jett. loves Joan Jett. <laughs> Maybe Cal <laughs> Ripken's wife loves Joan Jett. I don't know. No, I think Cal does. I think he's like a punk rocker at heart. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like a punk rocker to me. Are you sure you don't want Jimmy Buffett? Um <laughs> And in 2015, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts were officially entered into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She has been called the Queen of Rock and Roll, and she is currently 63 years old and living her best life in Long Beach, New York. And that's Perfect. the story of Joan Jett. Oh, I love her story. So far. I love her story. That's yeah. so fun. It's pretty cool. I, yeah, it's I really enjoyed it. It's a very rock and roll story. Yes. Yes, it is. Lots of ups and downs. Lots of drug, sex, and alcohol. Yes. Um, yeah, but she figured it out in the long run, which is nice because some of them don't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that's it. All right. Are we ready to get into part two? I more am. Drinks? There's nothing in common. Oh, <laughs> <God. laughs> We're back. With part two, another cocktail, another soda cocktail. Interesting that we 
both randomly chose to have soda in our yeah i know i know i almost did ginger beer in mine oh funny i was just like we haven't done it in a while yeah and i love a ginger beer <sighs> me too it's so good so, so spicy really so great especially when you're hungover i love yes. ginger beer yes <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to know what you're drinking i do it looks delicious so this is called the bitter and the sweet Ooh. and it is an ounce and a half of bourbon um two dashes of bitters one half ounce of fresh lime juice, and then you put rosemary on top with an edible flower, and then top the whole thing off with ginger beer. Oh, perfect. Cheers. Cheers. Whoop, got caught in the wires. <laughs> mm. I love ginger beer, and I love lime. It's yeah. so good. Mm. What's the, um? I'm sorry, what is the alcohol you said it again? Bourbon. Okay, interesting. That's mm -hmm. so funny because I almost did bourbon and I chose rum. Mm. And I feel like this would normally, like a lime and ginger beer cocktail is normally made with rum. Rum, yeah. That's funny. It is. <laughs> I definitely wanted like a bittersweet combo. I wanted mm. there to be like a lot of sugar, but then like some. Yeah, because you're like, usually a spiced rum adds like a certain element of sweetness to it and you're really right. not getting that. It's really like the zestiness of the lime and the spiciness of the ginger beer with a little bit of sweetness because obviously that's sugar in it. Um, but yeah, the bourbon kind of grounds it all, which is so nice. I yes. really like it. So refreshing. <laughs> so tell me what you know about Arwen. Okay. So I know she is a part of the Lord of the Rings thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know she was played by Liv Tyler. I know that she's an elf. Uh, I believe she's like the princess of the elves. Um, and I know that she is with, uh, not Boromir, Aragorn. but Aragorn. Um, I know that she's with Aragorn <laughs> and I believe like there's like a whole thing where like she chooses to be with him and like give up her elf status or something. And mm -hmm. cause I know cause her dad is like, but you'll die. And she's like, I'm dying for love. Um, or something like that. So yeah. I don't know like, the ins and outs of it, but I know that. And then I know that like Aragorn dies. So that's, and I know that elves walk on top of the snow cause they're so light. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good job, good job. But that's it. That's all I know. Um, I watched the first Lord of the Rings maybe a thousand times yeah. that summer it came out. Cause Zach, was Zach watched it every day, right? He watched it every the day that of the summer. Rings, he watched every day. Yeah. 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 Him and Matt Raiden. What a, mm -hmm. what a crew. Um, yeah. Arwen's story is very interesting because there are not a lot of female characters in the Lord of the Rings and people tend to get really mad if you try to sexualize the Lord of the Rings. So hmm. like if you try to make it sexy or like solely this like really intimate story, people are like in fan groups. They're like, you don't belong here. If you can please see yourself out, this is not what this is about. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is not a sexy story. <laughs> okay. And uh, I think other than um, Eowyn and Galadriel, Nobody knows the names of any other women in the entire book. And you might not even know those two. They sound familiar. I have no right. idea who Eowyn is. I yeah. think I always thought her and Arwen were the same person. Right. Not true. Um, <laughs> and is Galadriel the kind of fairy woman that's mm -hmm. like very ethereal played by, I think, Kate Blanchett? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. Perfect. I think she like is like a vision of something. Like she gives yeah. like some sort of like proclamation. She does. Okay. As the elves do. I remember that. <laughs> Are they all elves? All these women? 
Um, no, Eowyn is not, but okay. Arwen and Galadriel are. Okay. Um, hold on. What? Who were? Arwen and Galadriel. Are elves. Liv Tyler and Kate Blanchett. Okay, are the elves. <laughs> are the elves. Who is Eowyn? Eowyn is like the blonde girl that comes in later. Um, she's in Twin Towers and Return of the King, and she's like the daughter of a noble and like is a good sword fighter and then goes into battle disguised as a boy. Okay. So she's the very traditional archetype of like a girl in a fantasy series where you're like, I want to be a boy. Uh So she learns how to fight and sneaks in. And then she's like the the Arya. Right. And when the big bad is like, no man can kill me. She's the one that's like, I am no man. Rips her helmet off and like beheads his snake dragon thing i see yeah so yeah if it's past the first movie i have no mm-hmm. idea about yeah, it yeah 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 yeah. she's um, great she's great well and then you have but she's um, not arwen the little girl from the town like rosemary or whatever yeah. her name rosetta is. rosetta Ro- i want to say samwise yeah. ganji's wife yeah. yeah something rose wife at the end <laughs> okay <laughs> let's do this all right i'm ready <laughs> so the um sources i used are the one wiki to rule them all Oh, Which is that's cute. Adorable. <laughs> and then the Tolkien Gateway. Obviously, the LOTR trilogy from Peter Jackson, the writings of Tolkien. And then Tolkien also wrote so much in this genre. He didn't just write The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Like, he wrote everything he wrote is like Lord of the Rings uh, encyclopedia. Hmm. So like he wrote a backstory of Arwen and Aragorn falling in love. He wrote about their grandparents and great grandparents and their children and great grandchildren. Didn't he also like invent the Elvish language? language. Okay. Yes, correct. (laughs) Like he actually wrote that language. Okay. So he's like real in. Okay. (laughs) He like played (laughs) one card hard. (laughs) Okay. So let's do a couple of things that you have to know about like Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings first. Um, he set up all of these different ages as he was writing all these things. So it's very Greek mythology where it's like there were the Titans and then Kronos beat the Titans and then Zeus beat Kronos. So you have all these different things that are the ages, the age that we are in, in the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings with all the characters we know is the third age on middle earth. Okay. Um, the beginning of the ages, like way back, it's a very religious in nature where there are these gods. And then there's one that's like the God, I'm not going to get into jargon vocab. So if you guys want that, go somewhere else. (laughs) And they created creatures just like you would see in like the Bible or the Torah. Um, in essence, they're creating life. The wizards like Sauron and Gandalf, they, there's only like six of them. Okay. And they are not um learned humans they are like angelic okay creatures from like the divine heavens elves and humans are two of the create creatures that were created on middle earth humans being the favorite because they're like in the likeness okay you know, just like we would see in the bible therefore humans are given the gift of mortality and free will which is very different from elves mm-hmm. there are a few elves that are biracial <laughs> they're half elven half human arwen's father is one of them making her one fourth human i believe oh so her so 
Elrond. Yes. Interesting. Agent Smith like from The Matrix. very up on his high horse. He's very on his elven horse. For not being horse. 100% elven. Yeah. Honestly, not okay. a pureblood <laughs> So her lineage, though, is like royal amazing people mm-hmm. back 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 so her dad lord elrond hugo weaving agent smith <laughs> is the leader of rivendale he's a famous warrior and a counselor and he's like always in the center of middle earth politics okay. so arwen's always in the center of middle earth politics her grandmother played by gate kate blanchett is What's her mother her grandmother oh, her grandmother is galadriel um, she is the lady of the golden wood. She's about as old as you can get as an elf and has witnessed nearly all the ages okay. of middle earth. And her history is pretty incredible. Like she has one of the elven rings, you know, how in the beginning they're like, we created 19 rings and now there's like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so grandma Kate Blanchett is great, <laughs> but her family history has like so much in it. And, um, Tolkien wrote a lot about it. Like her grandfather saved Middle Earth during the first age, and her one of her grandmothers is like half angelic, and her mother, Lady Celebria of Rivendell, is like the woman who inherited the necklace that she always wears okay. and then gave it to her. She also has these really two powerful older twin brothers. So she is like stacked with family she's born into a very wealthy very well-known very amazing family so Mm -hmm. when you say she's a princess elf you are correct okay (laughs) um but also what this makes her is a direct descendant of man and elf and the angelic creatures okay so that's kind of crazy and unique for a person to have all of that in your bloodline Mm -hmm. as a half elf though she shared the right along with her father and brothers to choose your fate If you're half-elfin, you can either choose to live a mortal life or an immortal life. The rules aren't really explained, though. It doesn't appear that, like, if you choose a mortal life and then have kids, that your kids can choose an immortal life. Okay. But she was allowed to choose a mortal life and then gave her passage on the ship to Frodo at the end of Return of the King. So it looks like you can give your immortal passage away. But it has to be immediate. I don't quite understand how Frodo got on that boat, but he did. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to He that. went on a boat? Yeah, at the very end of the third movie, he's, like, so traumatized by these events. And Arwen gave up her right to be immortal. So she oh. gives that to him. And he leaves forever. Like, they all have a very oh. sad goodbye. And oh. nobody ever sees Frodo again. Oh, my God. That's so sad. sad. That is sad. I don't like that. I know. Okay. We got too deep too quick. <laughs> <laughs> Pull it back. (laughs) Let's pull it back. The name Arwen means noble maiden. Her honorary elven name is Evenstar, which we see a lot referred to her necklace. While writing other drafts of Lord of the Rings, the character was named Findulius. um, And it was only during the first proofread that in 1949 that Tolkien switched it to Arwen. So he had the entire novel done and went back and changed it. I'm for the better. Honestly. I like Arwen much better. It's much better. (laughs) According to the appendix of The Return of the King, she was born in the Third Age in year 241 and is pretty young for an elf. Only 
2,778 years old when the ring is destroyed in Mordor. Whereas somebody like her grandmother is around 8,000 years old. So she's like a baby elf. Sometimes Arwen's birth is messed up because Tolkien did like not know when to put it. He was like, I, how long do I want her to have lived in a peaceful era before a war? Right. So he bounced it back and forth a bit. So be careful what site you're on. <laughs> it might be wrong. <laughs> when she's born in the third age, the world's relatively peaceful. And there are a few hundred years um, from the epic war of the last alliance. The last alliance is the war that's shown in the first scene of the fellowship where it's all these guys we don't know except Mm -hmm. for her dad all fighting over the ring and like defeating sauron and that enters middle earth into a period of peace which is how arwen grows up while during this period the power of man is growing elves and dwarves are fading into obscurity which is why like we don't see a lot of them in the movies um Still, though, there are elven cities, and Arwen pretty much lives her entire, like, 2,700 years before meeting Aragorn in these elven cities. She's okay. bouncing back and forth between Rivendell and Loth- Lothlorien, which we both we see in both the movies and both the book, or in all the books. Um, she When she's in Lothlorien, she's living with her grandparents. When she's in Rivendell, she's living with her dad. During her early life, she starts to see her family less and less, though, because a tragic event happened to her mother. Mm. About 500 years before the events in The Lord of the Rings, her mother was captured by orcs Mm. in the Misty Mountains. And her mom's eventually found and rescued by her two sons, but she had been tortured and poisoned. And Elrond saves her life, but... She is so traumatized, she never fully recovers. Oh. So she takes passage to the Blessed Realm to live forever in peace. So they are now spending thousands of years in Middle-earth without her. Elrond and Arwen and her brothers. Okay. Her brothers after this become especially bitter towards orcs and spend much of their time hunting them. And they team up with the rangers, which Aragorn's a part of the rangers. Um, And this actually led the two brothers to be present when Aragorn's father is killed by orcs, making Aragorn the heir to the throne. Mm. So in meeting Aragorn, it's kind of a weird love story because of this age gap. Arwen is on one of her general trips back to Rivendell to see her dad from seeing her grandparents in Lothlorien. And she's about 2,700 years old. And on the streets of Rivendell, there is the 20-year-old Aragorn that she sees for the first time. He's walking down the streets and sees her and thinks he's daydreaming. He's like, (laughs) this is the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my entire life. He's 20 years old and just found out that he is like the heir to the throne of Gondor and like kind of pompous. Um, (laughs) For him, it's love at first sight. For her, she's amused that he is head over heels, like obsessed (laughs) with her beauty. He sets his heart on pursuing this elven maiden. This... Okay, so we talked about Twilight earlier, uh-huh. obviously, because of Kristen Bell. No, Stuart. Kristen Stewart. Do we think there's a little bit of, like, a double standard here? Because, like, there was a, a lot of talk when Twilight came out about the fact, like, Edward, even though he's in, like, an 
what is it like 18 17 year old body he's in his hundreds it is he was born during the spanish flu like well yeah i i you know i it, it drives me bonkers okay when it happens because it happens in a lot of these immoral immortal stories um it happens in the court of thorns and roses stories too where it's okay. like you're hundreds of years old you could not right. possibly think that this teenager is interesting right you can't but i think what's interesting about arwen is that she doesn't like him at this time okay she's like flattered but doesn't like him until he's in his 50s oh she never makes a connection with him until much later i like that yeah i like that aspect of it of mm-hmm. like she's like you gotta age a little bit like, buddy calm down you gotta like live your life yeah <laughs> Yeah, because she's not like she's not. He's all into like pursuing her, but mm-hmm. he's like, she's like, no, 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 no. And of okay. course, the, at the, he's twenty years old, and like, dad comes out and's like, "Hi, we're amazing. Calm the fuck down." <laughs> also, my daughter, if she's gonna marry a human, you better fucking be the king. So, like, go age up and come get oh, reunite get the, reunite the fucking world like okay, the world if you really like her if you really like her bring a dowry <laughs> bring the whole kingdom of gondor please perfect so that's what happens <laughs> and dad at this point actually has a prophecy that he shares with them they do show pieces of this prophecy in the lord of the rings that um They'll never be together unless Aragorn becomes the king. And even if they are together, eventually either Arwen or Aragorn will die of a broken heart situation Mm. because their aging scale is just different because of their different races. On another note, (laughs) Aragorn was in Rivendell because Lord Elrond was like kind of fostering him because yes, they are related. Let's make sure that we remember this, that Aragorn is partially elf. What? Now, Aragorn's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Elrond's brother or Arwen's uncle, but he chose to be mortal. So he died, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of generations so it is far enough apart. Oh, it's far enough apart for sure. Okay. Way far enough apart, but like... He is technically that's so the great 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 grandson of her uncle. That's so trippy to think about. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's that's far, farther apart than the Roosevelts. Yeah. <laughs> let's be clear. Let's be, let's be honestly clear. But I think what's interesting there is like so her like uncle would have died like three thousand years before Aragorn was even born. But it is literally one leap over in like that's my brother's great 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 grandson. Yeah. So kind of strange but fine (laughs) fine so elrond obviously struggles because of his love for his daughter Mm -hmm. and her dad knew that her choice mortality or immortality would either be to separate his daughter from him or to separate his daughter from aragorn Mm -hmm. and he's not like comfortable with either it's like a true father's love situation Mm -hmm. over time Aragorn understands that he is not going to be able to marry her unless he proves himself. So he bounces from River- Rivendell for like all these decades. And also Arwen is sent to like the Misty Mountains to get her out of the dangerous territory like before the war. The two are separated for 
decades. But Aragorn goes out, becomes a battle-worn warrior, ages up, gets his wisdom, his scruffy beard, his long hair, his good horse, and then comes on back in at 50 years old, and then they see each other again. Very exciting. They spend a season together, and now Arwen is reciprocating his love. And she's like, oh, he's like this hot, older, exiled king who's like also a ranger, but he's disguised. And Elrond's like, fine. (laughs) he, He finally gives approval. And they do have this little betrothal ceremony which they don't show in the lord of the rings but they talk about it together okay like remember when we got betrothed okay so it's like this beautiful place where there's like this big ring of trees and they're standing in it talking and i i just love the interactions that happen between them and we'll talk about why in a couple minutes but they betroth and they decide that they will eventually get married okay so The difference between the movies and the books is really good. Obviously, I'm not going linear, by the way. I just couldn't with her story because then I have to tell Frodo and Bilbo Baggins and, like, I can't do all that shit. (laughs) So, no one cares about the hobbits. They just (laughs) saved the world. Shush. Okay. So, Arwen actually has a very, very small role in the movies and an even smaller role in the books. Um, Various scenes were added into the movies using Liv Tyler, and then some of them are from canon material, some of them have been added, and some of them are from Tolkien's other, like, fantasy writings that they were like, oh, we'll pull from here and here things he said about their relationship. Mm -hmm. In 1978, a guy named Ralph Bakshi began um, an ambitious project to do the Lord of the Rings movies and Arwen is never even mentioned in any of the any of the movies. She's cut completely. What? And it's just the boys like <laughs> getting the ring to Mordor. Mordor fun run. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That just sounds unfathomable. Yeah, to unfathomable get her out of there. To it, me. Yeah, because it's like I know they they like enhanced her role a little bit, but cutting her out completely kind of like takes out Aragorn's will to become king. Right. Like yeah. she's the reason he wanted to do it. Yeah. Hmm. So in the Fellowship of the Rings, the scene you talked about earlier, Frodo needs to get past the Black Riders to get to Rivendell so that her father can heal him. In the book, it's another character that takes him, but they chose Liv Tyler to scoop him up on the horse, and Aragorn and her have this cute little discussion in Elfish, which I love that whenever they're having a private conversation, they speak Yeah. In Elfish or yeah. Elven, which I think is a really lovely part of their relationship because other people are just standing around and they're like, blah, blah, and Legolas <laughs> is the only one that understands. <laughs> um, Orlando Bloom, shout out. <laughs> so she scoops him up and she has to outrun these black riders. And as they get to this river, she has this very intense and active role where she turns around and says, if you want him, come and claim him and then like magics the river to turn mm. into like all horses Herd of so horses, cool. <laughs> and they just like chase off the black riders and it's just an amazing scene in the fellowship which really cemented arwen's character as powerful and she draws her sword as she's doing it you know if you want him come claim him which is great but most of her scenes in all three movies 
her and Aragorn are just envisioning each other. They're not actually together. And I think that's something we forget. Hmm. They're usually fantasizing about being together because they're in separate places. She's grappling with, do I go to the undying lands? Do I stay here with Aragorn? What should I do? He's like, do I become the king and accept this terrible role and then be with her? But what if she leaves? Then why did I take this role? So they're both trying to figure out what they should do, but they can't text each other. Right. So like they don't know what the other person's decision is and their decision is entirely reliant on the other person's decision, mm. which is crazy. Um, but she's a massive piece of the puzzle of Middle Earth. In the DVD special features, Liv Tyler talks about being the only girl on set. And it's really fun. And also, this was Orlando Bloom's first ever movie. So, <laughs> yeah. She would, like, drive him around and, like, give him advice. She would, like, pick him up from the airport and be like, okay, here's what you need to do today. <laughs> like, you've never been famous. Let me help you out. It's adorable. Oh, my God. Yeah. I also found out a fun fact recently that apparently in all of the movies, the only dialogue between Frodo and Legolas is and my bow. They yeah. never talk to each and other. My bow. Yeah. You know what's That's funny? So too? weird. <laughs> a lot of that happens in um, Game of Thrones as well. Really? Like, you see all of these characters, but they're very rarely in the same place together. Right. So like, just because you know what all the characters are doing, doesn't mean they know what each other is doing. I found that with, um, like uh, Sansa and Arya were mm-hmm. together so much in the beginning and then they like don't see each other for like the rest of the show yeah. like but yeah I found that so crazy that they never spoke to and each my other axe. <laughs> and my axe my yeah that's in the fellowship yeah they don't see each other in the movies Elijah Wood and Orlando Bloom aren't in the same scenes because they're doing separate things oh I always thought they were just kind of all walking together all the time no so Frodo oh. and Sam go off alone oh and like Mary and Pippin go off in one direction and then Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn and Bormir dies in the first one but they all go off in the other direction so they all have separate tasks oh I okay they don't see each other now some of them come back together like when Frodo gets bit by the spider and somebody has to save him but they don't like Frodo's not at the battle of Helm's Deep in the second one there's a massive battle that like the hobbits aren't at because they're off doing shit Okay, I had a totally different vision of this movie. Yeah, it's great. Okay, so wow, that fellowship is not very together. No. Okay. Yeah, you yeah you have just have a movie marathon this weekend. <laughs> watch all three of them back to back. Allie, I don't even watch movies that I want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, this will change your life. Oh okay. my god. Okay. So Liv Tyler, she's being interviewed, and she says. Originally, I was supposed to have this bigger role in the two towers where I have my sword and I lead the elven forces in this battle of Helm's Deep, which is not in the book. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they all decided that it doesn't do justice to Arwen's character because it's not something she would have done. And also, it confuses the narrative between her and Eowyn who is a female warrior archetype and who does fight with the boys. And Liv Tyler famously said when she's interviewed about this over and over, you don't need a sword to be a strong woman. (gasps) I love that. Because she's constantly (laughs) like, everybody's like, aren't you upset that Mm -hmm. X, Y, Z? And she's like, no, I'm not actually upset. And we're going to talk about the perception of Arwen 
um, before we leave. <laughs> so there's a lot of scenes. She revives Aragorn through this vision when he's like drowning. They are repeatedly showing her struggle with her desire to leave Middle Earth. They repeatedly show his strength um, being like pull- fully pulled from her. Mm-hmm. Like, he cannot go on unless he knows that she is there. The movie carries a lot of remember when moments and playback scenes. And the scenes are really beautiful. And she, in one of my favorite scenes, gives him finally, they're in the place where they got engaged or betrothed. And um, she's like, remember when we did this? And then she actually takes off her elven stone necklace and gives it to him. And says, I would rather live one lifetime with you than face all of the ages of this world alone. Giving him the necklace. Mm. And it's really powerful because he tells her, you can't do that. And then she says, I choose a mortal life. Mm. Not I choose you. Yeah. I choose a mortal life. Because some of her biggest criticism is that she changed her entire life for a boy. And I don't think they're giving Arwen enough credit when people say that because there's a lot of things that her choosing a mortal life is tied to. Yeah, because this is the whole thing. It's like, I think you're not understanding the fact that she's lived for thousands and thousands of years. So she has every right to be like, I don't need to live thousands and thousands of years if I'm going to be depressed as hell without my partner. Right. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. I choose to be with you. I'm choosing to live this life. Well, yeah. And I think it's, it is so important that she says, I choose a mortal life because it's not putting the, it's not putting any onus on him. She's like, whether you're going to stay with me or not, I'm choosing this life. Yeah. You know, and that's a decision that I'm making for myself, you know? So I think that's a very important thing to note that, (laughs) I don't know. I don't think that that's anti-feminist at all. I don't either. And I do have a section dedicated at the end to that because Mm -hmm. it is something that people really struggle with, with Arwen. Yeah. Because she isn't a big mover and shaker, even though I think she is. She is too. I do. Like people have a big problem with her. But anyway. Okay. When he tells her she can't, she goes, I choose you to give this necklace to just like I choose who to give my heart to. So pretty much, fuck you, Aragorn. I will give you the necklace. Aragorn does, throughout the books and the movies, have this side story with Eowyn. Because he's traveling around trying to become king and rall up armies, and Eowyn hugely crushes on him. And he is just like, never gives heed to it. Never even once is interested. Which I love in his story because most often we see men in like this conflict and Mm -hmm. he's just like proudly wearing her necklace and she's like, whose necklace is that? And he's like, the person I actually fucking love. (laughs) And he even at this point thinks she's going to the Undying Land and he's never going to see her again. And he's like, no, this is my girl. Mm -hmm. So the the story also shows her deep struggle with her father's love, which I don't think we see that a lot in stories. Yeah. Um, but when she's telling her dad she wants to say to stay because she loves him, he says, "But do you not also love me?" Oh. And like he's crying <laughs> and she's crying oh and Liv Tyler's gosh. great with the glassy eye. Oh yeah. <laughs> and like it just I love that scene because I think it's 
so common of a woman, especially in like the quote era, they're supposed to be kind of like a middle age era for a woman to pass from one man to another. And that's what she's doing. She's mm-hmm. passing from her dad to her prospective like husband, but she's not doing it begrudgingly. Yeah. And that's what I like about her. Yeah. She does weave this beautiful black banner um, with gems and gold, and it becomes the symbol of the king's return and sends it with her brothers to the front line where the first time it's unveiled, it's like the announcement that Aragorn the king is back. (gasps) So like when that banner goes up, people are like, shit. (laughs) And it's like something that she wove. So also Mm -hmm. she can sell (laughs) or use magic to sell. Um, We also do see her make the decision to go to the undying land in Return of the Kings. She's on her way. She's with the people, all the elves. They're doing a little marchy march. They're getting ready to go. And she's on her way there. And we find out a couple of things. That she's dying on Earth because she's connected to the ring now. So if Frodo doesn't succeed, she will die. She's become so ingrained in this task. And so she's like, okay, so I have to go then because even if I stay, I'm regard like then I still won't be with Aragorn. So what's the point? So she's on her way. It's her last journey and she has this vision and there's this like little cute boy with like curly hair running through a field and like Aragorn runs down the steps and like picks (gasps) up this little boy and swings him around and she looks and the little boy has her necklace on and she turns her horse around and like leaves this this processional yeah to the undying land and just leaves them which is not just leaving for aragorn she's also betting on frodo yeah which i love she's mm-hmm. betting on him succeeding yeah. which is very cool so she chooses to go back and I think it's great. <laughs> so I'm skipping over all the battles and shit because she wasn't there. So yeah. after the final battle, Arwen and Aragorn do get married, but it's supposed to be like six months after the battle in midsummer because he needs time to get coronated and right. she needs time to get to him. They haven't been together for like years at this point, but they do show kind of like a combo glimpse of the coronation slash wedding So it's at the very end, and there's this big sweeping shot of Minas Tirith, and Aragorn is crowned by Gandalf, and Arwen comes out. She's holding this banner. Aragorn and Legolas are like, brother. They, like, give each other hugs, and then Legolas is like, check out this girl behind me, because Aragorn thinks she went er, to the Undying Land. He has no idea she's there. He thinks she's gone forever. He just got crowned king thinks his queen is gone and like she moves this banner out of the way and she's there and he just like pretty much runs to her and she goes to bow to him and he lifts her chin Aww. up and then just plants <laughs> a big fucking kiss on her Yay. and it's so nice <laughs> and then together they go over and bow to all the hobbits because they go to bow and they go you bow to no one <laughs> like mulan at the <laughs> end so anyway I, that's when she gives Frodo her like ticket to the undying land. She's like, my mom was traumatized and went there and got better here. You can have my ticket to untrauma zone. So that's, that's nice. what happens. Okay. So as queen, um, there's only three times that a man and an elf got hitched and they're one of them. Um, she becomes the queen of the reunited realms of Gondor and Arnor. <laughs> 
<laughs> These things are hard, Katie. <laughs> and overnight, because of that, as an elfin angel human woman becomes the most powerful woman in all of Middle Earth. Whoa. Um, she helps Aragorn rule his kingdom for 120 years. And she actually brings Samwise Gamgee's daughter to her to be a lady-in-waiting mm. at Minas Tirith. She has a son and two daughters, and her son takes over after Aragorn dies as king of the realm. And their union united the bloodlines of all the kings and elves of, like, <sighs> the region. So it's perfect. Now, her perception as a character is crazy because... The fantasy genre has really increased in recent years with mm -hmm. people like Arya Stark, Hermione, Princess Leia, Xena. That's what people want to see. Yeah. However, like some of the criticism of her character is that she plays a more traditional role and people want to see an action oriented woman. They're like, modern women aren't passive. Don't be passive. And they think that she's a forgettable character. But her character is about love and sacrifice, a lot like Lily Potter, I would say. Oh, my gosh. Like yeah, that's the, a great comparison. The way that we view her is like I was doing like Lily Potter was like a woman in quarantine. She was living in that little house for a year and a half with James and her son to hide from Voldemort. That's not active. Yeah. She like that's scary and alone. So. She gives up her eternal life to keep hope in Middle-earth and is arguably the one that makes Aragorn have the courage to go on. And again, she bets her life on Frodo, mm -hmm. which is something that not a lot of people would do. I think that her immortality was more than giving up like living forever, but it's like a religion almost, like yeah. giving up the knowledge of the eternal world. Mm -hmm. So even though her suffering isn't upfront or flashy, like she doesn't have a sword and she's not beheading monsters, I think that she is the woman's plight from throughout history of yep. sending your soldier off into war and not knowing if he's going to come back. But you can still contribute to the war from your house, yep. which is what we see so often in war-torn countries. The women are doing things. Yeah. It's not fancy, but they're yeah. doing things. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's interesting because my mom and I were hanging out the other day and... Uh, we were talking about like women's history month and all mm. that. And my mom has never really identified as a feminist. And she was like, you know, she was like, part of it was because I was coming up in like the seventies and the eighties. And she was like, I was kind of being told that feminism wasn't for me because I was choosing to, you know, be a wife and a mother and like give up my job to raise my kids. And she was like, you know, the other women of my time, she was like, they really judged me because I was choosing to do this thing that was seen as so typically woman. Of well, me. women still and judge women like that. They do. Yeah. And she, and I told her, I was like, you know, I hate that you experienced that because I think now the focus of feminism is to be like, yeah, choice. Like we just want everyone to have to, the choice of what they want to do. And a woman's place is in two things, but <laughs> <laughs> the, to be who and how. what she yeah, was. Exactly. <laughs> And that was like kind of what we were talking about. I think that is the power of Arwen is I think she represents a lot of women who don't feel like they belong in the feminist movement and they totally do. Yeah. It's like, do you believe in equality? Great. You're a part of it. Great. Yeah. You got, you <laughs> got it, buddy. <laughs> <Go ahead. Woo! laughs> 
<laughs> and I yeah. just, I don't know. I think it's wonderful to have a fictional character embodying all of that. It is. And I just, I think that, I mean, most of her role is her sitting and like stewing over what to do. And I can't imagine, you know, now we have texting and this and that. I can't imagine a woman while the man or person that she loves is at war mm-hmm. and you are sitting and stewing for years. Yeah. That is not something I've ever experienced because mm-hmm. I can text my husband. And if he doesn't text me back in a half an hour, I'm like, what the fuck's wrong with you? I know you read it. <laughs> you got, I got the red receipt. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. So I just, I think that she's portraying what Tolkien understood about women sitting through war, which think about when he's writing it. Writing it like the 40s. Exactly. It's during women experiencing war in that way. And there are people like Eowyn. He wrote an Eowyn. Yeah. She's yeah, in it's, there. It's not like they're not in there. But yeah. You, yeah. He just, this is how Arwen is experiencing life. And I just don't want to judge her for that. It makes me so angry. Yeah. People don't like her. It makes me angry too. Because I was always so inspired by her. Yeah. She seems so powerful. Oh, mm-hmm. anyway, it makes me mad. Okay. <laughs> So, um, obviously one of her most complicated things is her mortality after Aragorn passes and her son becomes King. It says in the books that she says goodbye to her friends and family and leaves Minas Tirith and goes to Lothlorien, which is the last of the elven homes. But by the time she gets there, her grandmother Galadriel and all of the elven people have left. Hmm. She wanders around for the entire winter and then finally lays down to rest in the place where they got betrothed. And then Arwen passes away of a broken heart oh. because he is gone. Now, remember, they met when he was 20. There's 30 years they're apart till they see each other again, get betrothed. They have the whole ring fight to do. And then they rule together for 120 years. So 120 this, years. Yeah, because they both have like elfin ancestry so they can live oh. a little bit longer. I always thought that Aragorn died at the end of the last movie. No, 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 no. He died. We see visions of him dying because it's just oh, her dad that's keeps what the going. tomb is. Okay. He's going to die. He's going to die. Okay. And you're going to be alone, which happens. Mm-hmm. But it's after they've been together for 200 years and this is the only man that she's ever loved Mm -hmm. so she lays down and dies of a broken heart and a green grave grows there and Mm. that grave will not be end until middle earth is altered and she was 2901 years old Mm. amazing and that's the story of our one (laughs) Uh, i also Oh, gosh, I thought of something good to say. And now I totally forgot about it. <laughs> I'm sure you'll think of it during the just the two. But I do love her. I think yeah. I don't like dying Ooh. of a broken heart is lovely. Yeah. I also here's what I was thinking. Um, spoiler alert. Have you finished The Good Place? Yes. I okay. Know. Yes. So it kind of reminds me, you know, if you haven't finished, skip ahead. But at the end of The Good Place, like they decide that the real good place is a place that you can choose to leave mm. because you know, if you're just stuck in heaven doing whatever you want for infinity, it doesn't feel good is good, you know, because you kind of feel trapped in it. Mm -hmm. And I love that she gets to kind of choose to end it on her own terms, you know, not, I guess not choose, but like, you know, it's able to end. And I think there's a real power in that. Yeah. And I just, I think that their love story is one for the ages. Mm -hmm. 
And it's one that people don't give enough credit to. Like, I honestly think this is going to sound dumb, but I think about them as like a Minnie and Mickey. Like nobody doubts their relationship. Not once. And they never show any doubt towards one another. Yeah. Ever. And that's what makes their relationship so solid. Yeah. I totally agree. All right. Well, you ready to talk about these two women in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. (laughs) This one's a hard one. It is a hard one. Um, But I was thinking about one of the first things you said where you're talking about how the women of the Lord of the Rings are specifically unsexy. And I feel like they're kind of meant to be these like pillars of virtue, you know, and you're not supposed to think of them then that way because they're like better than that or whatever. Mm. And then you have like people like Joan Jett and the Runaways just totally being like, nope, we're 15. We're going to be sexy. We're going to be crazy. Oh, and yeah. kind of like the juxtaposition of <laughs> what women were thought of in the 40s to how they ended up being in the 70s and 80s. Right. I I think also, too, I loved how we were talking about how we perceive women after the fact. Yes. Like, I think that Arwen is perceived a certain way. I think that Joan Jett and all the women in her band have been perceived in a different way, and it is all dependent on when you became famous, Mm -hmm. when a person is reading your story, and then the, the, like, the, the way that we see you through a lens at that time in history. Yeah. So, like, we're going to see Joan Jett differently. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, because we're like, yeah, whatever. You were bi, you were pan, who cares? We're going to see, like, sexual harassment and rape yes. differently. Mm-hmm. We're going to see Arwen as, like, a stay-at-home wife. Right. But it's like, also, aren't you, like, the fucking council on the reunited kingdom? Right, yeah. <laughs> Like that we just I think we forget things like that sometimes when we see a woman in a corset or an elfin dress or mm-hmm. like with a crown. We're like, oh, she must just be X, Y, Z. Yep. Exactly. We, we assume people like Joan Jett are going to be the feminists. Mm-hmm. And we forget that, like, you can be a feminist from any position. Exactly. And it's interesting, too, because I think that both of them were at the center of some very turbulent political times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you mentioned that earlier that, like, her dad is at the center of politics, so she's at the center. She is at the center, uh, Arwen is, of this very big world-changing event. You know, if we think about the hobbits trying to destroy the ring as, like, the sexual revolution, like kind of as like a comment, you know, not yeah. commentary, but like if we look at those things side by side, it is like the world is changing. Some people are taking it really good. Some people are taking it really bad, but something is fucking happening and it's irreversible now. You know, you can't go back to a time right. before the rings were made. Anymore. Get on board or get out. Exactly. Mm. And I think it's amazing that you have two women kind of at the helm of these huge social changes, but taking the kind of the exact opposite uh, roles in it, you know, like you have (laughs) fucking Joan, you know, up front saying, fuck you. Like I'm doing what I'm doing. And if you're not going to let me do it in the proper way, I am going to do it myself. I'm going to DIY it, which I love that that's so opposite to Arwen's even namesake of noble maiden. (laughs) Like you couldn't get more opposite than Joan, but 
the fact of the matter is we need both women to make more room for people because you do need some people kind of holding it down and being like, okay, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, Joan. Right. Like, <laughs> like let's make room for everyone. But think also too about how when they both broke down, like you were talking about the fact that Joan just like the band broke up, the album's not a success and she just like sit around and drink all day. Mm-hmm. I think about all those images of Arwen just walking through the halls like crying like not knowing what to do she was just in such a state of depression and not Mm -hmm. knowing what to do with her life which I think everybody goes through and I like seeing it on screen yeah it is something that we should portray yeah and it's something that also like men go through too you know and we can't ignore that people who aren't women also like miss their partners and go through longing and like it's portrayed as such a feminine thing. And like, you know, it's seen as like, oh, Joan was so depressed because her band didn't make it. And like, you know, she's crying and she's a woman. Right. And it's like, what? Like, I feel like oh, we talk about male rock stars being so bummed that yes. their bands didn't work out all the fucking time, you know? And I don't know. But no, that's good because I like that the Legolas relationship with Aragorn where like yeah. he never questions that Aragorn's part elf and also like betrothed to his like queen maiden. Right, yeah. He's always like, respect you, man. Respect. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm respect. all here for your guys' relationship <laughs> even though you're like not one of my kind. Right. Which I always found very interesting because you would assume jealousy right. from somebody like that. Yeah. I also, I think... That it's going to be, it's interesting to think about um, these two women having these big, great loves in their life. You know, Arwen's is obviously Aragorn and Jones is music. And I think it's interesting that both of them had to wait for the music industry and Aragorn to kind of catch up with them. They're like, you're not ready yet, but like, (laughs) I'm going to be here when it's like the perfect time. You know what I'm saying? Because like, obviously when... Joan first got in the music industry, it was not ready for her. You know, we think about, it's crazy to me that when she first started playing on stage, people are spitting at her. They're throwing things at her literally just because she's a woman. Right. She's like, it's fine. I'm not going to go away. I'm going to wait it out. You know? And I feel like Arwen did the same thing with Aragorn. Like you're a baby, (laughs) but like, I'm not going anywhere. And like, Mm -hmm. and I will wait for you, you know? And I think that it turned into these big, great loves, which not only changed their lives, but changed the world, which I think is amazing. I also like to compare Arwen to Kim. And I know that that's weird, mm-hmm. but like Joan is like, let's get a band together. Uh-huh. And like Kim is kind of like orchestrating it from the background, but uh-huh. meddling and being terrible. Yeah. Where it's like the fellowship of the rings is like, we're going to get these dudes together uh-huh. and we're going to deliver this ring. And she's like, cool. I'm going to oversee it and kind of like make sure it happens, but I'm not going to like negatively affect it. Yeah. Well, then I feel like she's more of a Kenny. Okay. She's a Kenny. Yeah. I feel like she's more of a Kenny. I like to compa- like contrasting her, I guess, to Kenny yes. is what I was thinking okay. where it's like they are doing an opposite thing for this group of people who are attempting to like work for a cause. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the difference between someone who's invested in a positive way. Like Arwen is obviously like, I want this to happen because like I <laughs> love mankind and i want the world to be a better place and kim is doing it for a totally selfish reason you know he's like i just want to be surrounded by like want to rape little baby women yeah Yeah. exactly terrible um and i don't know i just i also i it's interesting that joan and 
you know, Liv Tyler, who just played our, just played Arwen, are fielding sexist interview questions all the time. I mean, women still deal with that now. It's so fucking annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I love that Steven Tyler's in Aerosmith. I know. Forgot about that. that. That came up in our story. It's so fun to me that that's a random connection between oh, these women. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that is so funny. I like sometimes forget that that is the Tyler and Liv Tyler's name. <laughs> <laughs> that's her dad, her actual oh, dad, her actual not her dad. elf dad. <laughs> that's fun. Oh, but man, the queen of rock and roll and the queen of Gandor. Listen, I didn't know if they were gonna. <laughs> I think we found a couple of things. A couple of things. That was a hard one. It was a hard one. But a good one. But a good one. Um, Yeah, I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are you ready to toast these women? Yes. Okay. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? I want to toast to people who give up on what they think they want to do in favor of what they actually want to do. Mm. Because it's like, live your life. Like, There's a lot of things you think about yourself, what you think you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And um, she was on a fucking horse ready to go into Immortal World and yeah. turned the fuck around. Yeah. So <laughs> halfway down that aisle. Change it up. Ooh. Who do you want to toast? I'm going to toast women who don't give a damn about their bad reputation. But it's interesting because I... Also kind of think that Joan cares a lot about kind of her legacy and her reputation, Mm -hmm. but in a kind of good way. Like she's like, I wanted to pave a way for women in rock and roll. And she's like, I fucking did that. You know, like someone said it best. They're like, Joan didn't open the door for other women. They're like, she took a fucking sledgehammer to it. (laughs) Knocked it down. Um, Yeah. And I love that she did kind of live her life in a way that is very public but also extremely private like mm-hmm. i'm su- i was shocked in her story about how little we really knew about the ins and outs of her personal life right you know they're like her personal life section on wikipedia is so small mm-hmm. compared to like like any other rock and roll star i'll tell you what if we ever recorded an episode that linda wants to listen to Ooh, <laughs> this is it my God. it was so funny when because when you mentioned earlier when you were like yeah, I think like most females are bass players. I was like, is it because Linda's a bass player? No, I think like it's true. <laughs> I think that's a true statement. But yeah, Linda does rock out. Linda yeah. is your sister-in-law and uh-huh. she is a badass bass player and she's super cool. And and also like Lord of the Rings. She loves rock and roll and Lord of the Rings. So this is for you. Cheers to you, Linda. Oh, and- her birthday will be like the day this comes out, I think. No. Yeah, what's next Thursday? Her birthday is March 27th. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Well, this is the 17th, so it'll be 10 days. So it'll be a couple days after. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is for her birthday. (laughs) Okay. Happy birthday, Linda. Surprise Surprise. to us. Okay. So find us everywhere. Oh, Oh, no. Promo. Yeah. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Post-it notes. Love it. Mostly because I ran out of post-it notes this week and I was like, what the fuck do I write shit on? It's devastating. Yeah. So I've just, I I haven't, I haven't run out of post-it notes in a really long time because I just like have a cache of post-it notes yeah um so i really got confused about what to do with myself so mm-hmm. perfect post-it notes get them have them love them keep them give them as gifts give <laughs> oh, them as gifts please give them as gifts i That's love a great a, gift i idea. love a stock gift of post-it notes it's a great gift what idea. do you got <laughs> um i am going to promote one of my favorite rock and roll bands uh the ramones i fucking love the ramones and when i am feeling 
like I really need to like get some energy out or something or if mm-hmm. I'm feeling kind of sleepy in the car I turn on the Ramones I'm like screaming at the top of my lungs I fucking Fun. love them um I they're one of the very few bands that like I would love to fucking have seen them in concert. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you and I aren't like super big music people. No, I hate a concert. You know, I like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I like concerts, but I'm never like dying to go to them. I would die to go to a Ramones concert. Yeah. It just sounds like so much fun. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to recommend them. They're so fun. They're so crazy. And get it, get it good. I love the Ramones. So yeah, that's what I'm going to recommend. Now, Thank you so much for listening. We love you. <laughs> Come on around. Mm-hmm. All of your Women's History Months are in the mail, unless you're overseas, in which case I have to go to an actual Post-it Plus. <laughs> but everybody else, they're in the mail. They're in the mail. And if you want to join our patron and get involved in what we're doing over there, you can find us on patreon.com and join for as little as a dollar a month to support what we're doing, buy us a cocktail. You know, because I do go to Total Wine a lot, so it would be... <laughs> We're broke as fuck at this point. <laughs> All right, but find us everywhere. Rate and review us for free. Oh, that would be the best thing you can do. It's just rate and review us uh, on Apple Podcasts. Mm. It's always appreciated. It literally does not cost you a dime. Uh, and it's the best. Um all right. Well, thank you all again. We we'll love see you. you next week with another pair of surprise Yes. Women. Mystery date season continues. <laughs> whoop, whoop, whoop. Only four more weeks. Woo! And we want you to never get, forget that well-behaved women have different sets of scissors for different tasks. <sighs> yes, they do. And they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye